you think about an industry where you can be creative. And, you know, part of creative, as I've learned, is not like painting a picture or doing this amazing sculpture. That's one type of creativity. Another part of creativity is it is, you know, it's cold, it's wet. Um, you know, we maybe it's, you know, a difficult day to do construction and I have to figure out how to pour 1,500 yards of concrete. Well, we're going to figure out a way to get the trucks in, get the trucks out, make sure that the concrete sets properly. That's an art. That is creativity at work. And when people can recognize that, man, it, it's amazing to see those creative skills at work. Hey, Construction Nation. Welcome to Lead with Trust. I'm Sue Dyer. And I've been on a three-decade journey to figure out how to make sure our construction projects succeed and produce some extraordinary results. My trusted leader journey has led me to work on over 4,000 construction projects worth over $180 billion. In this podcast, I'm here to teach you everything I've learned. One thing I know is that it starts with the leaders of the businesses and organizations that come together to build a project. If that's you, let's get going. Hey, Construction Nation, welcome to Lead with Trust. And this is Sue Dyer. And today I'm going to share with you a great interview I had with Tyler Dickerhoof, who has a podcast called The Impact Driven Leader. And Tyler's very much into leading and developing leaders and learning how to become a high impact driven leader. And he has some really great insights about leadership, but also about the agricultural industry where he came from and how there's very many similarities to construction and what construction's going through now, in particular, the workforce that we simply don't have these days. And it's harder and harder to find people to work on our projects. So I think you're going to enjoy this interview and get some great insights, hopefully for you as a leader, but also as the industry. So let's listen in. Welcome to the Lead with Trust podcast, Tyler. I really am so appreciative that you've come to be with us. And Tyler has doing some pretty cool things that I wanted to make sure we were sharing with all of you out there in Construction Nation. So welcome. Thanks, Sue. I'm uh, I'm excited to be here, chat with you again. Uh, I was lucky to get to meet you and have you as a guest on my podcast. And man, I love the opportunity to continue the conversation, but uh, to sit on your couch now this time. I appreciate it so much. I enjoyed very much. You're very good at what you do, and I can see why people enjoy your podcast. It's very conversational, which I enjoy that. So I always ask everybody this stupid question, but uh, you know, uh, I figure if you could ask a stupid question, you can sometimes get an extraordinary answer. Yeah. So when you were in high school, you know, who did you hang out with? You know, when uh, as I think about that, um, I. I it's hard to answer. There wasn't like this one group I hung out with. And let me give you a little concept there. So I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up on a dairy farm. And so um, part of that was, you know, I was around friends that had the similar type things. I was in FFA. I was in 4-H. I was 
in different youth organizations. But I also played sports. I played soccer, played a little basketball. And then, you know, academics wise, I was always kind of in that, you know, maybe with the, the smarter kids, but yet I didn't really work that hard because I was working. I, um, it wasn't until I applied to college that I realized my senior year of high school, I had three jobs, plus being a student, plus playing soccer, because it's just what I did. I didn't know any different. And so I just kind of randomly hung out with a lot of different people. I didn't have that like group of three or four friends that we were everywhere together. I had um, a lot of friends from around the state, around the country that I, whenever I saw with them, I hung out with them. So I didn't have this one distinct group. It's interesting. Everyone that I've met that's grown up on a dairy farm okay. are just incredible workers, incredible people, because they don't sit there and judge okay. everything that's in front of them. They just got to go do it. Got to go yeah. do it. They do it. They get it. Make it done. Great implementers. So yeah, yeah every well, I mean, now. Yeah. And from a, you know, growing up on a farm and, and you know, it's it, farming isn't as much about the agriculture side of it. It is problem solving from A to Z. I mean, it, it's it's electrician to plumbing to, you know, construction to veterinary care to all of that's agriculture in and of itself. And what also is another piece of that is there's amazing technology. You know, agriculture as an industry is one of the most technologically advanced industries beyond what you think of as the most technologically advanced agriculture's implementing it or already doing it from robotics to, um, you know, technology and software, all of it. And with that all said, you know, this idea of, oh, you know, we'll get to it. I'm sorry, the ship's going to move whether you want it to or not. So you better get on or you're, you know, going to get wet. And so I think that that adage of especially dairy farms, when, you know, it's so important to be there timely. And if you miss that time frame, you can't make it up later. Other points of agriculture you kind of work around that, um, but not dairy farming. It kind of reminds me of two things. One is how similar it is to a construction project where you just have to go out there and you have to do it. And every day it's problem solving and it's trying to figure out how do you make this two-dimensional or even three-dimensional thing actually work in the real world? And you're dealing with all these other people. In your case, you're dealing with all the animals who may not yeah. really want to do yeah. what you want them to do or weather and all the things. It's very similar. And so the mindset to me is what I really want to dive into here. Yeah. Because in construction, in, in, in agriculture, they've done a lot with machines, technology. With a very small number of people now, you can feed far more people than you used to be able to. Yeah. But in construction, that's not the case. And the aging out of the folks, uh, the average worker now is like 52 years old and they, they retire at 61. And there's all kinds of jobs that are out there now, projects that are going that can't man the, the jobs. There's something like a half a half a billion jobs that are going unfilled. Yeah, it's you got any thoughts on for the oh, industry I mean, on how how do we attract younger people to the industry yeah. when they really have a mindset of no, I just want to sit on my phone. Well, I, <laughs> man, hearing that from you actually is very similar to my experiences in agriculture. 
but maybe a generation ago. I, I think one of the things in, in, like I said, I grew up on a dairy farm. Um, my parents were first generation college educa- educated. It was very, very important to them. My, my siblings and I go to college. Um, I ended up um, going to Cornell University. I was very grateful, thankful to get there. And with that said, what I learned through that process is just going somewhere because to check it off the list, meaning that's what you should do, has really put us in a bad spot in our country. And the industry that was probably affected before construction and, you know, those labor intensive areas was agriculture. Uh, like I said, you know, growing up on a farm, the workforce on our farm was my parents, my older sister and myself. And part of it was people didn't want to work on a farm. They didn't want to do the job. It was dirty. It was messy. It was 24 seven. You couldn't call and say it. That didn't happen. And so we, as a society, that evolution of, Hey, Go to college to make something of your life. You're worthless to our society unless you have a college degree. That was said. And that was a mentality that, you know, permeated our society for many, many, many years to a point where I can remember, and and this is, you know, going to different places and and meeting people for the first time and, you know, saying, oh, yeah, I grew up on a dairy farm and, oh, I grew up on a background of agriculture. And they look at me like I was a second class citizen. Like I was this dumb, you know, uh, uh, overall wearing, you know, dirty hands. I didn't have any, you know, had no ability and skill and knowledge to add value because I grew up on a farm. And what's amazing is how our society has almost come for full circle. Now, I saw a research article that was done early COVID or right before that, 2019. And the most trusted people in our society at that point were actually farmers. It had changed in a decade's time from, you know, professional athletes and these public individuals to being the most trusted to they were actually right above politicians at the bottom of the list. And it was actually people that did, um, you know, labor jobs. It was agriculture that were at the top And our society had changed so much. And so when I hear that from you about construction, I think it really comes to a a reclassification of understanding what value is in our society. Value is not a piece of paper. Value is not a, a certain career, is not a certain job. Value is the person you are and the contribution you make to society. And I think that's what we're, we're wrestling with. And, you know, again, as a society, seeing this change, I own animals, I have cows, I do that every day, but I'm not active in agriculture like I once was. And so when I see this from afar, the, the care that people have in our society about farming and understanding the difference it makes in our world, I, I absolutely believe in, in the next few years, we're going to have people that have a greater appreciation for electricians and plumbers and concrete workers and steel workers and you know general construction workers. Why? Because our world would not be what it is without them, too. Absolutely. You have all these educated people that are overeducated, don't want to do a job, and you know are getting paid you know similar wages for that job for the last 20, 30 years. And yet we see the construction you know wage go higher and higher and higher. One, because of the demand of people needing that, but two, because our society values it from an economic point of view. It's true that the built environment really defines your whole entire culture. Yeah. I mean, everybody has to have a place to live. Everyone mm-hmm. has to 
have a place to work. It may be at home, but you're going to, you have goods and services have to go between places. I mean, it's, it's true, the built environment plus building things is just so cool. It is. I mean, you think about an industry where you can be creative. And, you know, part of creative, as I've learned, is not like painting a picture or doing this amazing sculpture. That's one type of creativity. Another part of creativity is it is, you know, it's cold, it's wet. Um, you know, we maybe it's, you know, a difficult day to do construction and I have to figure out how to pour 1500 yards of concrete. Well, we're going to figure out a way to get the trucks in, get the trucks out, make sure that the concrete sets properly. That's an art. That is creativity at work. And when people can recognize that, man, it, it's amazing to see those creative skills at work. It is very creative and, it, and it's really problem solving. So you have to have a yeah. problem solving mindset because it's every day because it's just, and it's very complex because you figure just even a, you know, a $10 million project is going to have probably a hundred different companies sure. that are coming together. And so it's very complex. It's very creative. It's very exciting, I think. Yeah. But people are not coming and we need to attract them. And one of the things I know that we're talking, we're doing a whole series in next year on bringing women into construction, because right now they're 1.5%. And if we could get more women to come in to the trades, mm -hmm. into project management, uh, it would probably make a, a big difference for the numbers of people that they need. And uh, and of course, other people too. But yeah, um, yeah. so you got any ideas on, on that? You have, well, you have such good ideas. I want to hear them. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes me think of, uh, so I had the opportunity to get to know, interview a lady, uh, Meg Epstein. So Meg is uh, the founder of CA South, a development company that she started in California and then moved to Nashville. And um, she started into construction. She was, a, a, she was in architecture. She went to... Uh, I'm pretty sure she went to UCLA um, and she ended up doing ar architecture. And one day she was running and running by this house that was being built and was so intrigued by it. She ended up going meet the general contractor and ended up working for him and becoming a contractor. And it was just this idea of what you just said, the creativity at play, the ability to make something different and, you know, not be a normal, you know, trade, uh, a normal job where she was going to go into architecture, doing something different. And now she's a, you know, a, a commercial developer, you know, taking that to another extent. And I think to me, that's the great opportunity to attract people is go into those areas and those jobs, those careers and say, hey, you know, you can actually use this in our industry and you're going to learn and you're going to be a tremendous benefit. You're going to bring a different perspective which is going to help us as an industry so much. And so I really put that in, appreciate the contractor, the day that she just stopped by the work site, just to see what was going on, willing to embrace and mentor that and say, yeah, I'll show you. I gladly welcome you into this community instead of thinking, you know, the, the tremendous bias of, oh, you're not fit. You're not able, you're whatever other story. She's gone on to have a tremendous career and made a major impact and lead really this charge that you're talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, I've been in construction for 40 years. And one of the things I love about just construction in general is that there's this perception that you're not welcome. Mm -hmm. But what I have learned is that they don't care if you're purple, green or whatever. 
if you can do the job. Yep. And uh, and if you want to do the job. And yep. then they're really uh, that's been the most accepting place I've ever found. And uh, I've been working here for many many decades yeah. when it was really unheard of. <laughs> but well, uh, I I think what you to me what you underline in my experience is you know the values. If you have the values of character and hard work and grit, man, people don't care what you look like, what you wear, you know, what your interests are outside of that. If you can come and show up on a job site and do those things, you show up on time, you work hard, you make everyone else around you better, dude, there'll be a job for you as long as you want it. And I think those are the things when you start talking about inclusion and diversity and equality, if we focus there, and, and take everything else that our eyes, you know, try to see. And it would be amazing to me to watch the diversity in people change and make it really a, a more robust workforce because you're not selecting based upon certain characteristics that have, you know, certain, you know, downsides, certain, you know, um, I guess would say restrictions or things that hold back. And to me, that's what gets exciting about solving that problem. Well, I also think it's the differences that make the make your for a powerful team. Yep, it's a bunch. You know, we go through the life and we think, well, you know, I'm a leader. I, I've been doing this for a long time. A little bit of me is good. A lot of me be great. So then we hire people just like ourselves and wonder why we have so many problems, the same problems over and over and over and over again. You know, you hire I, people who are different, different experiences, different backgrounds, different yeah. perspectives, different skills. And then you begin to have a much more powerful, dynamic team. I, I relate to that. One, because not everyone's a sports fan, but it, it's pretty common in our society. And even if you're not a sports fan, you can start to go through the conversation and people understand the difference in you know, positional players. And um, you, know, you think about a football team. A football team has 11 different people on the field at one time per team, and they're all playing different positions. And they all have different strengths. They all have different attributes. They all have different skills. And if you take, you know, like a, say the offense, the offensive lineman, you know, a guy who is six, seven, 300 pounds, and he's super, super strong. And you want to make that person your running back or your wide receiver, your team's going to fail, even though they have all the attributes to be exceptional as an offensive lineman. They have all those attributes to be a tremendous all pro. You go put them at wide receiver. And your team's going to struggle because that is not what's needed in the position. That's not what's needed. And so those are tremendous different, you know, attributes. The same. You can take an all pro. I'll throw a little 49ers, a Jerry Rice, right? You take a Jerry Rice and you make him an offensive tackle. Joe (laughs) Montana would have been scared for his life for a long, 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 long time if one of the greatest football players ever was there to block and defend, you know, keep the defense away. It doesn't work like that. And, and to me, thinking about it in that sense really lends back to what you're talking about, making this diverse team with different skill sets and, and people that are able to see what you can't see. And that's how you're able to accomplish what you never thought you could. I, I think that's really a brilliant way to help people understand the need for a diverse team. I also think the other thing that is is gone on in construction for about a hundred years, you know, if you think about your 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 you've got the all these guys in the right team, in the right place, with the right positions, and they're highly skilled, but they're playing from a different set of rules. Yeah. 
And both teams have a different set of rules and they go, well, why are you doing that? I don't know why you're doing And that's what's happened in construction is that we are highly interdependent, meaning that I can't succeed if, if you if you get in my way. And yeah. so that makes us interdependent. And when we're interdependent, if we're adversaries, that's a lose-lose. Mm-hmm. And yet for over a hundred years in construction, we see each other as adversaries on a job. Yeah. And then I'm they wonder go- why they don't succeed. Well, I'm going to go back to that sports analogy. Um, you know, I, I like multiple different sports, right? I played multiple different sports. Football is one of those sports that is very scripted. It's very coordinated. And if you go from team to team, if, if all of a sudden, you know, uh, you go from playing for the 49ers and say we roll down to L.A. and you're playing for the Rams or in my home state of Ohio where, you know, you go from the Browns to the Bengals and they could run the exact same play. And yet there's a complete different language of describing that almost as different as, you know, going to Europe where, you know, you have these really, really small countries and, you know, there's the language barrier is sometimes geographical. It is across the border. And we don't have that in the United States. That isn't normal to us. And, and I that's what happens in football. And I think that's what happens in a lot of our corporate world construction in other industries where we have this common language that if you take people and you try to commingle them, man, it's chaos. But yet I, I stop and I think about sports like baseball and basketball and soccer. And you can take and you can pluck somebody from one team and go to the next team. And all of a sudden, man, they're actually able to contribute and perform because the game lends to the language. Football is totally different. Now, I think if we could learn from that and say, all right, what are the things that are going to be most important for us on a job site? It's not about our team having success. It's about the entire job having success. What do we need to do when we go onto that job site to, not, to make sure that we help everyone else succeed? If subcontractors went in with that mindset, meaning, hey, I'm doing the plumbing work, right? But if I, if the concrete and the, you know, the, um, the um, trenching and the, you know, foundation work, if it's not doing done right, I, I can't do my plumbing right. And the same point, if, you know, we're on an interior, you know, an interior crew comes in and they do all the insulation and drywall and they drywall over all of my stubs, it's really hard for me to finish out that plumbing, right? But yet, if we go into that beforehand and say, hey, this is what is necessary for me to succeed and for you to succeed. So you don't have to come back and redo the job, killing time, killing revenue, killing everything. What is that? How can we have a common language? How can we make sure that all of us succeed and not just me because I want to come in, do my job, get on to the next one so I get paid? I want to make sure that the whatever the goal is that we get accomplished, it takes a little bit of intentional communication beforehand. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, my work has been for 40 years is aligning these teams mm-hmm. with common goals, common purpose. Yeah. So it and and it absolutely does. I mean, we have research that shows you can save yeah. five to 10 percent of your total cost and up to three, three, 30 percent of your time. Uh, it's, it's but people are in denial in the industry that we're interdependent. They, they think that they can go in and protect their own interests and somehow 
that's how they're going to succeed when just the opposite is true. So did you ever have anything like that happen in agriculture? Because I think agriculture and construction are so sistered together. Also, technology is really emerging and changing things too. So I think that's already happened in agriculture. It'd be interesting to see your perspective on that. Since my Wall Street Journal bestselling book, The Trusted Leader, came out last February, so many of you have asked me to create a course based on my book. So I've spent this year developing the Trusted Leadership course, Go Farther Faster by Using Trust. And I'm so excited to announce that this self-study and also group coaching course will be ready for launch in January of 2023. It has six modules that will be transformative for you and your leadership. And I guarantee that you will get a breakthrough to the next level of trust in a challenge that you and your team face. And the group coaching is there to support you every step of the way and answer your questions and learn from others. I'm so excited. And I hope that you will jump on over to sudico.com slash course, S-U-D-Y-C-O.com slash course, C-O-U-R-S-E, and reserve your spot today. Now, back to the show. So for 13 years, I was nutritionist for dairy cows. And so in that role... I worked with uh, dairy farmers and I helped put together a nutrition plan for their cows. And part of that was working with not only the staff on the, the dairy farm, which could be anywhere from five to 50 employees on that dairy, to also all the other um, service providers to that dairy farm. And, and that could be, again, dozens of different people from veterinarians to you know uh, the feed suppliers to bankers to you name it. There's a lot of people involved. And I saw it a lot. I I saw this divisiveness almost constant. And and it came in a lot of ways because of something that plagued me was insecurity, meaning I don't know what value I have. I am fighting to extract value and I'm trying to control what I can control. And by doing that, I end up hurting who I'm trying to work for. I'm hurting that, you know, that business owner because I'm, you know, either unwilling to take the give the credit or I'm unwilling to take ownership. And and I think that happens. And again, you can take from industry to industry to industry. And I think this is one of the amazing things. It doesn't matter if we're on a job site um, that is building the next major uh, freeway wherever in, you know, this country. It doesn't matter if we're on one of the largest, you know, um, row crop farms in the United States. It doesn't matter if we're at a bank. There's one thing that all three of those locations have in common. There are people. And if there are people, they have the exact same wants, needs, fears, and insecurities. And if we can stop for a moment and understand that and say, okay, if I go in, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier in the work that you do to build a trusted leader. In my opinion, to go from a feared leader to a trusted leader, there's probably, and I I think this aligns to everything you've seen is if we can grow as a person, meaning instead of pointing all the fingers out at everyone else, I start to say, hey, 
Why am I the way I am? How can I help people be more comfortable with who I am? And how can I elicit trust from people? If you can go through that spectrum and go from that viewpoint, then your ability to lead and your ability to perform is going to be exceptional. And here's the thing that I recognized in my career is it it took some painful moments for me to go through that process. Meaning I had to lose some business. I, I had some strained relationships and I realized there's got to be a better way. But I also know it's not the general contractor. It's not the foreman that needs to go through that. It is the person that just walked onto the job site for the very first time and is working for the company. Meaning if they're there and they're like, I am of value and how can I, you know, work through myself and understand that I can be a trusted individual in this organization, they've started leading the most important person and that's themselves. themselves yeah. And if they, people start leading themselves, it's a cascade of what happens. Yeah, I, I agree 110%. Uh, also, uh, I really want to just dive in into right now too and talk a little bit about your impactful leader <laughs> and, and your podcast and what yeah. you're doing with that too, because we sort of led up to how you came to this. Yeah. So tell us about it. You know, tell us more about your uh, impact driven leader and why, what is an, what is an impactful leader? Well, I'm going to start there. Um, You know, in my mind, an impact driven leader is a person that's looking at making a difference, making an impact instead of someone who's just trying to have success. You know, it's really kind of, you could coincide impact with significance. Right. It's probably one and the same. And, and I believe if we're driven to make an impact, if we're driven to be significant, it's not about the results being success. It's about the process and it's about being bigger than ourselves, kind of almost a legacy. And so when my desire to, you know, really form this organization and, and help and serve other people, it, it's focusing on that. Why? Because I went through the days of I didn't know what success was. I didn't understand what value. And when I started to understand that I could have an impact because if I got healthier as a leader, I got healthier emotionally and physically and relationally and spiritually. If I got healthier there and worked to get healthier, I was going to have a positive impact on people. And a positive impact leads to what we deem as success in the work world. And it's also extremely significant. So um, that's kind of how it started. And One of the things that uh, I really enjoyed doing in that growth cycle myself was having conversations with other leaders, was reading books. I was not a reader when I grew up. I had too many other things to do. And, um, you know, winding down for me was usually falling asleep. It wasn't reading a book. And um, I really enjoyed the process and, and having conversations over books, not just reading it and checking it off the list, collecting the information but really learning. And so I decided I'm going to launch a podcast. I'm going to talk to leaders, talk to authors. We're going to discuss leadership, what it means to them, and really try from that then to um, have great conversations, not only with the authors, but other people. And so from that was a book club and a roundtable where I host, where it's a small group, five to eight people in the cohort, where we'll read a book. And there's not a curriculum per se. It's like, oh, here are the 20 questions, but rather What are you going through? What struggles, what experiences, what pieces of the book are really layering together? And it's an approach that I learned from one of my mentors, John Maxwell. It's called layered learning. 
And, and I look at it as it's kind of like baking a cake. If you and I were to walk into your kitchen and we're going to start baking a cake and, and we just put flour in a bowl and decide, oh, here's our cake. That's not going to be much of a cake. And, and that's for me coming into a job site. And this is my perspective. And this is how we're going to do it. I bring the flour. Well, you happen to be in there in the kitchen with me and you grab some eggs and you put some eggs into the flour. Well, great. That's the same at a, at a job site where you bring your perspective and all of a sudden, all right, we could probably throw that in the oven. Something might happen. But as you know from baking cake or myself, and it can be rudimentary, you start putting in more ingredients, right? Those are everyone's perspectives and what they're learning and how they're taking this information based upon their experiences and applying it to the group. And eventually you mix all that together and then you put it in an oven and you let it bake and you let it do its thing and, and you bring it out when it's perfectly golden brown. And that to me is what the round table is like. It's, it's sharing that information and time after time after time, week after week that we meet and sharing those perspectives. And it's amazing the cake that we get to eat. It, it is absolutely amazing. Something that I would say I could never orchestrate by me alone. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely, 100%. One of the things I learned when I became the executive director of what's now United Contractors Association, I had a board and I had you know all my hundreds of members, um, but I began to learn that there was a collective wisdom in a group. And I learned that I could 100% trust my life to my board. They would do what was right and they would come up with answers that would be extraordinary. And it led us to becoming very, very large, very, very successful, do things that people thought were impossible because they had this wisdom. And so I see the same thing on projects too, that you know there's a collective wisdom in that team. It's just, how do you get it to percolate mm -hmm. out? How do you give them a forum for that to come to fruition? And it's really true for every leader in every business. Are you tapping into the collective wisdom of your yeah. team or are you just telling them what to do? Yeah. And one area that I've, I've probably seen time and time again, it's been discussed so much in my recent conversations is, are you doing things to build psychological safety? I believe this in every organization, every worker, every, I, I would even go to every individual that is coherent of it in the United States, including my teenage kids. They are yearning for psychological safety because of what we've been through, because the change in our society and workplaces, especially not only psychological safety for themselves, but also those they care about and the people that lead them. They're sitting here and they're asking, do you care about me or do you care about something else? And if you care about me over, you know, maybe the job or over, you know, just the requirements, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to go to bat for you and I'm going to work my hardest for you because you've shown that you care for me over maybe something else. But the opposite is if you show you don't care about me, you're looking at, yourself or your profits or whatever else, what's quickly going to happen is there's going to be a disease that festers in that organization. And everyone's looking around saying, no one cares. And therefore, I will not care either. And that's when all of a sudden we have this major issue. I, I heard this stat last week. 
of all the people that resigned during the pandemic, it's been, you know, kind of surveyed or whatever, 82% of them quit because they were looking for a better leader. Yes. 82%. And that gives me tremendous hope that, you know what, there's an ability for people if they're committed to be a healthier leader, that either one, they can be that example, come back to that psychological safety, or if they change that themselves, everyone else in the organization is going to be like, oh, they do care. I knew there was a reason I wanted to be here. There's two things about that, too. I, I agree 100%. That's why I wrote the book, The Trusted Leader. Yeah. Because it is, you have to have that level of trust for people to ever have the psychological safety. And the other thing I've found is that, because my background was labor management, you know, so I negotiated with all the labor unions and I had no, no ability to change anything with them, you know, just trying to negotiate with them, but using a non-adversarial partnering approach, seeing them as partners as opposed to adversaries. So what I've learned is that no matter where you are in your organization, if you want to create a high trust environment, you can do it right where you are. And just it'll just begin to percolate out. And the interesting thing is that you'll begin to see that you and your little team will start creating extraordinary results. And then other people in the organization, what are you doing? How are you Mm -hmm. doing that? And then, so then they start doing it. Then you have all these little places that are doing them. Pretty soon the higher ups are going, wait, wait a minute, what's going on with this division or what's yeah. going on here? How are they achieving it? So I've learned it only takes one person, one person committed to staying to create that partnering, high trust, high performing environment. And you can shift and change the whole thing. Yeah. It, you awesome. just have to be consistent. Just yeah. keep beating the drum, keep keep yeah. doing it over and over and over. It's I've seen it so many times. It's so fun to see that. Now talk about making a difference in a transformation. Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, love it. So tell us about your podcast. Yeah, so um, episode releases every week. Uh, authors, uh, leaders, authors like yourself were for me. It's just having a great kind of unique conversation where we can talk about leadership that maybe is outside of the norm and and just try to bring experiences together from a lot of different angles. I look at it as it's a way for me to learn and hopefully bring a little bit more to everyone else in such a different perspective. And again, having conversations about leadership and and not so much scripted, not so much, oh, this is the way leadership has always been. It's really, I think, going through what people are experiencing today and and really trying to layer in those experiences to where you can see leadership from a different perspective. And how can people find the podcast? Yeah. So it's called the Impact Driven Leader Podcast. Wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever that may be, Stitcher uh, as well, you can go to my website, tylerdickerhoof.com. There's a link to that podcast. And we'll uh, put all that in the show notes for you too. So that'll be there. Thanks, Sue. So how can people get a hold of you? We'll put, yeah, so we'll put it here, uh, we'll also put it in the yep. show notes. Yep, again, from my website, tylerdickerhoof.com. I'm also active on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, I host a coffee chat every morning. It's 9 a.m. Pacific. It's recorded, though, where I just share a few of the things that I'm learning, but also a certain thought of today. For example, to the today, the day we're recording, my um, thought of the day was collecting information is not learning. 
it, it's collecting the information and, and choosing what do I need to apply? What do I need to change? What do I need to teach? What do I need to do from this? That's when you actually learn. Just collecting the information, I'm sorry, it does you no good. If you're listening and you're in trade, just imagine this. You learn how to you know, sweat copper pipe. But if you never go and do that, you're probably not going to be proficient at it. You have to go and do it and actually screw up in order to learn that, oh, I can really do that. I can really do metalwork. I think you've really hit on something too for some of the younger generations because I see that in my grandsons is that they expect to be able to go and do something and be perfect at it when it may take you decades. You'll get good at it. But to learn the art of it yeah. takes takes a lot of repeating. What they say ten thousand times yeah. takes ten, it takes a lot of repeating. And so I think that would be another lesson learned yeah. from I, us. I had a, a mentor share with me that you know every master was at once a disaster. Unfortunately, when we look at you know the clips that we see in society from video to um, you know whatever it may be, we don't see the 9,999 building up to that 10,000. You know, when my kids go and search how to do something on YouTube, that YouTube video is not the 37 clips that it took to get that one video right. And so that perception comes there. And it's, I I think that's an embracing part moving forward a younger generation to say, hey, it's okay to make a mistake. That's the only way you're going to get better. And if you are afraid of doing it, if you keep from doing it, thinking I'm going to make a mistake, then you're never going to get better at it. You're never going to get good at it. Um, And that holds more people back than anything else. And I think this next upcoming generation is just sort of stuck there. Yeah. Uh, They sat at home for two, two and a half years. And it's, yeah, we we need to really celebrate them and help them to see that. You can make mistakes. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. That's how you learn. Yeah. And, and be willing to try different things. Um, again, it's, um, you talk about leadership and from the perspective of a parenting. And I know you have a couple of kids and grandchildren. It's, I've learned more there about leadership than anywhere else. And it's just saying, hey, um, we can get through this. And, and at the same point, you know, I see my sons are totally different. Um, my daughter's different than you know my sons and in, in appreciating what they are good at and what comes easy to them, and they'll do that and do that and do that. And yet there are things that are difficult. And you know it takes a little bit more effort to work through and saying, it's okay. Push through that because that discipline is going to help you in the areas where you're great because today you may be great. And then all of a sudden you come up against somebody that's better. Are you willing to continue to do the work and endure in the discipline? You know, to to come full circle around and talking about growing up on a farm and, and, you know, that background, it's my word of the year this year is endure. And a lot of that comes from my experience of of growing up on a farm. And there's some days it's great. There's some days it sucks. But you have to endure the days that suck to experience the days that are great. It's kind of like I know on construction sites, there are days that suck. It's raining sideways. It is cold. It is, you know, if you're listening in there in California in the, you know, the winter fog where it is the coldest I've ever been in my life (laughs) and you're out there and you're, you know, digging or you're, you know, hammering, whatever, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's cold. And yet there's going to be a day 
when it's 67 and it's a little bit of breeze and it's sunny and you're like, man, there's no better place in the world to be than outside in this environment. Got to give the, you know, take the bad in order to get the good and um, endure it. I also think the word endure also is taking a long-term view. Like in the work that I do, the people that I've trained, I tell, okay, this is going to be a 20-year effort. It's not going to just shift. You're going to work with this group. You're going to work with them. I I tell them it's like a landslide. You know, you can't really see it happening. There's no real movement. You don't really think anything's happening. And then one day it shifts. Yep. And then nothing happens for a long time and then, then it yeah. shifts. You just have to take this long view. Yeah. And I, I think that if you can do that, you can pretty much be successful at anything. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I want to thank you so much for being with me and, and sharing your, your thoughts. It just was very, very fun. Well, and I, I know it, that it's going to be very helpful to many of the listeners who are struggling. Everybody's struggling with uh, what to do these days. It's just that the world is shifting and has shifted and continues to shift. Yeah, well, I think, you know, to end on that note is just keep with it. And like you said, like the landslide and endure through the process and know that if you're committed to, in my opinion, to be a healthier leader, to, you know, be impact driven, you're going to make a difference. And you talked about that is just if the one person works at it, eventually everyone else around them is like, huh, what's different? What's different? What's different? Um, stay true to that and you will make a difference. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Okay, Construction Nation. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Lead with Trust. Will you do me a favor? If you think this episode can help anyone on your team or business, please forward it to them please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And your honest review, hopefully five stars, is much appreciated. Every leader who learns how to build their business and projects on a foundation of trust is going to reap the rewards of greater productivity, attracting the best of the best, enjoying your business more, and doing things you thought were impossible. If you wanna know where you are in your trusted leader journey, I have a free resource for you please just go to sudico.com slash profile, S-U-D-Y-C-O dot com slash profile. And you can grab it there and find out where you are on your trusted leader journey. And so that is a wrap for today. Can't wait until I get a chance to hang out with you again next week. And until then, have a great day.